This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, December 13th, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. Mao Zedong's liberation of China was anything but a liberation. It was, however, calculated and brutal. Frank DeCotter has spent years poring over documents that, until recently, were kept hidden away in the Chinese Communist Party archives. DeCotter's new book, The Tragedy of Liberation, A History of the Chinese Revolution, 1945-1957. to He discussed his findings at the Cato Institute in September. What better place on the Cato Institute to talk about the very opposite of the values it cherishes, namely uh, the systematic violence and calculated terror of the first years of the regime in China. I'm particularly honored because this is the, the Friedrich Hayek Auditorium. And had Hayek not written a book in 1947 called The Road to Freedom, uh, The Road to Serve Them, that's, that's very much the title that I would have used for this one. By 1956-57, that road to serve them has been pretty much fully traveled in China. And that's the topic of the book. Uh, in 2006, I read a newspaper article uh, in which it was reported that construction workers in Changchun, a city all the way up north in China, in a region formerly known as Manchuria, had made a ghastly discovery. They were digging, and in that rich black soil of Manchuria, they stumbled upon thousands of skeletons very closely packed together. The residents gathered around the excavated area and wondered, could these be the victims of the Japanese occupation? of the city during the Second World War. One elderly man realized that they just stumbled upon the remnants of the Civil War. In 1948, the communist troops had laid siege to the city, unable to defeat it, that starved it into submission. In the process, at least 160,000 civilians also starved to death. After decades of propaganda about the peaceful liberation of the People's Republic, few people remember the victims of the rise to power of the Chinese Communist Party. Let me step back, and why don't, why don't we start on the 6th of August, 1945. Hiroshima, erased in the blinding flash of light. Two days later, Stalin declares war on Japan, keeping to a promise he had made earlier to Roosevelt and Churchill at the Yalta Conference. The Americans gave him plenty of help to do so. At least, at least 600 ships of land-lease materials sent to Siberia. So even in the race to reach Berlin and occupy Half of Europe, Stalin managed to keep his army in Siberia almost a million strong. Manchuria is occupied within days. But even after the capitulation of Japan, the Soviets do not leave. They stay on till April, April 1946. They hand over the countryside to Mao Zedong and his ragtag army of guerrilla fighters. They establish 16 military institutions. Some Chinese officers go to Moscow for advanced training. Logistical help arrives by train, by air, by sea. 
From North Korea alone, 2,000 wagon loads are allocated to the task. And in the meantime, the Americans become so disillusioned with the nationalists, and Chiang Kai-shek in particular, that they stop their deliveries of armaments. In September 1946, Truman imposes an arms embargo. But Chiang Kai-shek, rightly or wrongly, believes that he cannot possibly keep hold of China without controlling Manchuria. So he keeps on pouring his very best government troops into that region. And again and again, his best armies are defeated by Mao Zedong. As Mao Zedong has been able to turn that ragtag army into a formidable fighting machine involved in a war of attrition against the enemy, the nationalists. By 1948, the communist troops advance towards Changchun. Lin Biao encircles the city, but when he realizes that the nationalist garrison stationed inside will not capitulate, he orders the city to be styled into submission. 160,000 people die. Zhang Zhenglong, a lieutenant of the People's Liberation Army who later on documented the siege, compared it to Hiroshima. He said Hiroshima took nine seconds, Chang Chun took five months, but the number of victims was pretty much the same, 160,000 civilians. Once Chang Chun is gone, other cities are besieged. Beijing, unwilling to undergo the same fate, surrenders. One after the other, cities tumble from Beijing all the way south to Canton or Guangzhou. By the end of 1949, the nationalists flee to Taiwan, never to return. What happens with liberation? Well, in every town conquered by the People's Liberation Army, liberation is celebrated with a very carefully choreographed procession. Soldiers open the parade, followed by a truck with a portrait of Mao Zedong, and dancers waving red flags, moving their bodies to the music played by heavy waist drums, gongs, trumpets. It's a fanfare. After the celebrations, come the police. They are less friendly. Within cities like Beijing, Shanghai, special teams trained to take over public security, arrive within days of liberation. But on the whole, whether it's in the police station or the post office, city hall, government servants, civil servants, are asked by the communists to stay on and help the new regime. After all, they can't run a country of that size. Well, the police, who stay on, do the rounds, and try to ferret out forbidden items, which range from radios to weapons. But most of all, they classify everybody in these cities and assign them a class label, a cheng fan. There are bad classes, revolutionary soldiers, sorry, good classes, revolutionary soldiers, factory workers, 
are middle classes, intellectuals, and bad classes. These encompass capitalists and landlords. All of them are asked to go and transform themselves into new people in schools. All of them have to, to learn the new ideology from Beijing all the way south to Guangzhou. Cities become giant adult education centers, except for a few at the very bottom of the hierarchy, paupers, prostitutes, beggars, but also millions of refugees and disbanded soldiers are sent to the countryside, which becomes the great dumping ground of all undesirable elements. Some of these cities, bustling Shanghai, for instance, become pale shadows of their former selves. Foreigners leave in droves. Shanghai, which at that time was half again as big as Moscow, had a larger foreign population than any city on planet Earth except for New York, and more foreign investment than either Paris or London becomes a dying city within months. Unemployment rockets, trade comes to a halt, shops shutter at six in the evening, a curfew is imposed. Further up north, Tianjin also slips into slow decay. But how about the countryside? I've talked about the cities. Let us go back to the countryside where liberation very much starts with something that has been referred to as land reform, quote unquote. It starts very much in Manchuria in 1947. It's done round about 1952 at the very latest. Some places undergo the process of land reform twice. Let me focus on one small village called Yuanbao, all the way north of Manchuria. 1947, special teams arrive into this village of 700 people. They try to find out what the power structure is. Who are the elected village leaders? Who are the people who carry credibility? And bit by bit, they try to pent up local grievances and polarize this village into two opposites. A majority, the people, and the carefully targeted number of victims referred to as landlords, tyrants, traitors. After months of very patient work, the militia arrive, seal off the village. Everybody has to wear a strip of cloth. The poor, or those labeled poor, wear a red strip of cloth. Those seen to be landlords have to wear a white piece of cloth. These victims are rounded up into cow sheds. One by one, they're dragged out onto a stage, struggled by the farmers assembled in their hundreds, mocked, humiliated, denounced, and eventually killed. Some 73 people in this village of 700 are violently killed. Their assets distributed to the others. The land paced, measured, distributed, furniture, lugged away, grain loaded into baskets, pigs driven along. Nobody here has the opportunity to somehow stand back on the sidelines. Farmers who do not participate in these violent denunciation meetings are themselves denounced as people who are shielding landlords. Mao manages 
to compel everybody to denounce each other. The result is that in this village and elsewhere, everybody has blood on their hands. The pact between the poor and the party is sealed in blood. Enough blood must be shed in order for a return to the old regime to become impossible. Violence is intrinsic to this revolution. It is not a byproduct. The villagers themselves have to get rid of their own leaders. Yuan Bao was very violent, but take Hebei, where a whole county is bloodied, according to Liu Shaoqi himself, who writes in 1947 that people are being dismembered, buried alive. Xi Zhongxun, father of a man referred to today as Mr. Xi, he runs the country, I believe, reports from Shanxi that even the children of people labeled as landlords are persecuted as little landlords. How many victims? Very difficult to say, but by 1952, 10 million people have been expropriated. 40% of the land has changed hands. Some 1.5 to 2 million people have died violently in the process. Might people be allowed to get on with it? By the end of 1950 or so, one year after liberation? Not quite. On the 20th, on the 18th, sorry, of October 1950, some 200,000 troops cross into Korea and start fighting the American troops a few days later. Mao uses the Korean War as a pretext to regiment his own society. He launches a campaign of terror. He has a directive in which he says that counter-revolutionaries, spies, bandits, remnant nationalist troops must be liquidated. And how is he going to do that? Well, like steel production and grain output, death came very much with a quota mandated from above. The chairman believes that one per thousand in the entire population should be publicly executed. But of course, he's not alone. Before you know it, there are willing executioners on the ground trying to outdo each other, comparing how many people they kill, and sometimes afraid of being seen as lagging behind. Villages compete with villages, counties and counties. By 1950 and 51, in a province like Guizhou, up to three per thousand people are being killed. And then ordinary people themselves in a very fractured society, use the terror to settle their own accounts, to pursue their own personal vendettas. Take one example, or two. The first one from Yanxing County in Yunnan, a wealthy region covered in salt fields, where on the basis of 
one anonymous denunciation that reaches the headquarters of the party, over a hundred school children are arrested in 1951. Wu Lianying, aged 10, is hung from a beam and he's beaten. Ma Sulia, aged eight, has his knees crushed on a concrete floor. A six-year-old is accused of being the head of a spying squad. Two of these students are tortured to death. You might think, well, that seems exaggerated. But this is the beauty of the party archives in which I have worked to come up with the evidence for this book. There's profuse, detailed evidence about what happened. Reports by the secret police, bean counters who add up how many people were killed, investigations, you name it. So this was not an isolated example, not far away from where I live in Hong Kong. Across the border in Guangdong province is a Luoding County where 340 school children were arrested on the mere suspicion of one case of theft in that entire province up to one third of all the people killed during this campaign of terror, up to one third of all those victims are judged at the time by the regime to be innocent according to their own standards. And then something else is happening. On the cover of these public executions, which are supposed to reflect the wrath of the people, verdicts are given by people's tribunals in cities. People have to attend them in stadiums, in the countryside, in the public village square. They must witness these executions. But under cover of all that, local cadres pursue their own little personal vendettas. People are killed secretly, covertly, along or in batches, along rivers near ravines, deep inside the forest. In one town called Maogong in Sichuan, some 10 people are officially denounced as counter-revolutionaries, shot in public. Over 100 are covertly assassinated. How many? Very difficult to say, but when this campaign of terror comes to an end in October 1951, according to one report, which the Minister of Public Security wrote himself, and sent to Mao Zedong, the total reaches 301,800 for a mere six provinces. Bo Bo, father of another man we've heard of recently, Bo Xilai, puts the number of people killed during that campaign at roughly two million. So now we are at the end of 1951. Might this be the end of the terror? Might this be the start of a an air of peace and social stability. Again, not quite. Mao Zedong turns his attention towards the very ranks of the party itself. He believes that there are local cadres who have become corrupt. Many cases are discovered as cadres turn against each other and start denouncing themselves. Two high-ranking party officials are executed in Hebei a shot in the heart, not in the head, as a concession to their rank. 
something else is happening under cover of popular support for a few highly publicized cases of corruption within the party. All those civil servants, government employees, who had been asked to stay on by the communists in 1949 and even promised the protection and gratitude of the party are no longer needed. A good million of them are quietly dismissed, many of them sent to the Gulag. And even before this campaign against corruption in the party has ended, Mao shifts its attention again towards another group of people. Already in January 1952, there are dark hints about malevolent, evil outside forces undermining public morality. It's not that cadres are corrupt. They've been made corrupt. Mao Zedong says that the bourgeoisie has been waging a savage offensive, quote unquote, against the party. But entrepreneurs, businessmen are already reeling from three years of communism. Everything that stood between them and the state has already been eliminated. But it's not enough. So the very techniques fine-tuned during land reform are now being replicated inside factories and enterprises in the cities. As managers, business people, shopkeepers are dragged out one after the other, made to confront the workers, assembled to denounce them. Some of these entrepreneurs turn against each other, driven by sheer fear, trying to save themselves. Again, no adequate numbers, but in Shanghai alone, some 644 people commit suicide within two months alone. That's about 10 a day. If you try to jump from windows, but the police have erected nets around some of these skyscrapers, so they go all the way up to the roof and take running jumps. Again, we will not know how many victims there are, but this campaign is also followed by something else, an attempt at thought reform, as all those so-called middle classes, those intellectuals and professionals, have to declare their loyalty to the party. Frank DeCotter is author of The Tragedy of Liberation, A History of the Chinese Revolution, 1945 to 1957. You can watch the full book for him at cato.org.